0: Welcome to The Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today, I'm excited to feature yet another episode in our series on The Commune Podcast called Ask Dr. G. We are consistently in receipt of fascinating questions from our Commune community regarding health. And I cannot imagine anyone better to answer these inquiries than my friend, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. So Sarah has been kind enough to lend her considerable experience and knowledge here on the show. To answering these questions, Dr. G is a Harvard educated physician, researcher, and educator. She received the moniker of Dr. G from the Philadelphia 76ers for whom she health coaches. She has led commune courses on the topics of perimenopause and menopause. And happily, we seem successful in luring her up to commune Topanga on a regular basis where she is leading retreats with my long-suffering better three-quarters, Skylar. So you can be part of the conversation and submit your questions at onecommune.com slash ask Dr. G. That's onecommune.com slash A-S-K-D-R-G. And to learn even more from Dr. G, you can watch her free Commune Masterclass, Women, Food, and Hormones at onecommune.com slash menopause. And we're so grateful to those of you who write us reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created an offer just for you. 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, preferably a good one, to receive your free all access for 30 days. Okay, in today's episode, Dr. G and I discuss libido. More specifically, how women's sex drives and relationships to sex change as they age. We explore both hormonal and other physiological factors that impact libido, but also lifestyle factors like raising children and busier schedules. But don't despair. Dr. G provides hope for those looking to amplify their sexual energy. As always, this was a fascinating and titillating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, without further delay, I present to you, my dear friend, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Hello, Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Great to be back with you. Hi, Jeff. Okay, so we are answering questions from our mutual communities, and this one is... From Sarah, not from you. Did you put this one in the Google sheet yourself? No, I don't think so. No, I did not. Knowing what the question is, I know you didn't. Um, From Sarah, I began to experience low sex drive after having kids in my 30s. Why does libido go down as we age? And Sarah... Is there any hope? <laughs> is there any hope? Obi-Wan? Of course, there's
1: hope. Of course, there's hope. So I love this question. I feel like it's such a common experience, especially after having children. I want to talk through kind of the the reasons for that, but I would also say, I don't think I don't think it's age that's the primary factor. And maybe this is a hopeful message because I think that. Certainly children can hijack libido for some period of time, sometimes 18, 20 years, but that's not always the case. And I also want to say I've got a practice full of women who are raising children, okay, less so in that category, but women who have an empty nest who really find their libido again. So in some ways, I think the more common issue is that most of us are mating in captivity, as Esther Perel would say, right? And it's the loss of novelty and maybe not having modeled for us the sense of how to have a growing sexual connection with someone that we love, with a partner that we love over time and how to keep feeding that sexual connection so that it's got the sacred component, sometimes a purely physical component, it's got an emotional component. So I think we should maybe talk through some of the more common reasons why libido declines and then come up with some solutions.
0: Yeah, sounds good. I mean, there are certainly, um, like in Sarah's case, she has, sounds like she has young children. Yes. So, you know, we, I think, can back into potentially some psychological and hormonal issues why she might be experiencing that. But as you say, there's probably just like logistical and relationship oriented issues that may impact women, particularly with like young children. Like I remember back when Skylar and I first had kids, I mean, we co-slept with our children. Yes. So I mean, it was difficult. Right. For sure. For sure. Logistically. And finding that time and energy for intimacy. Um, I I, I don't know if you experienced that when your kids were younger, but it was just harder for us to be intimate because our lives became very transactional and logistical.
1: It's a good point. I mean, I would say that there's hormonal issues, which we'll get to, of course. But yeah, this logistical issue I think is enormous. When you... You know, we both have daughters. You've got 3, I've got 2. And there's this experience of just the physical exhaustion of racing after children and raising children, and I would say that goes on. I have a cousin who asked me, she had twins that were like 2 years old, and I would visit her and she would get to the playground. We'd get to the playground together. And the two boys would just go in opposite directions, like running, sprinting in opposite directions. And so there were just never enough hands to take care of these children. And so she would ask me, she'd be like, Sarah, when does it get better? I am so exhausted. Like these two-year-olds are killing me. Like, when does it get better? And I was like, well, it gets better. She's like five, tell me it's five. And I was like, well, it's more like 12 13 and then and then it shifts from being physically exhausting to sometimes emotionally exhausting yeah so it's a lot you know trying to navigate and balance parenting with this sacred sexual connection
0: I wonder do you think that there is also a, uh, a psychological shift from being um, you know... When that inflection point of motherhood, where you move from, I guess, more of a sexual being to a sort of caretaking role, and that what that psychologically does, and also how society generally sees mothers, you know, um, as almost kind of uh, foisting a role, a ex- sort of expected role. That mothers are supposed to play versus, you know, pre-motherhood.
1: I think that plays a huge role. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna take off my doctor hat here and sort of speak more as a fellow human. There's definitely a huge psychological change that occurs when you go from the we of two to the we of three. And so attachment relationships go through this enormous shift. And if you look, okay, I'll put the doctor hat on for a moment. <laughs> if you look at what's happening biologically, you know, women go from pre-pregnancy to the massive hormones of pregnancy. Then they have this massive change when they're postpartum. Their hormones go from sky high estrogen and progesterone to almost nothing, especially if they're breastfeeding exclusively. And that, that is a perimenopausal state where you've got no hormones. It's often a preview of coming attractions, so pay attention. And along with that, we know, for instance, that there's a lot of pruning that happens in the brain. So this neuroplasticity that we do for the rest of our lives, it doesn't stop in adolescence as we once thought. It keeps going, thank goodness. We know that there's pretty significant pruning that occurs postpartum on the order of about a 2% decrease in total brain volume. Mm. And the women who are listening to me who have had kids, I think they're nodding their heads right now. They're like, oh yes, I totally (laughs) felt that. Mommy
0: brain. (laughs) (laughs) Mommy
1: brain, yeah. And so there's also this massive oxytocin change that occurs. So you've lost your estrogen and progesterone. If you're breastfeeding, you're producing oxytocin, you are tending and befriending this infant that's utterly dependent on you. And you can share some of those responsibilities with your partner, but it's not quite the same as being in the biological hot seat. So there's psychological changes that occur along with that. And some women navigate those very skillfully and successfully. You know, ideally women are surrounded by a village that can support them. And maybe they had modeled behavior by their parents. Um, of how to do this in a way that doesn't, you know, flatten you like a Mack truck. Um, But then some of us don't. Some of us really struggle. You know, with my first baby, I had postpartum depression. It was really a difficult, difficult time. And I knew enough to kind of do NF1 experiments with my next baby so that I didn't have postpartum depression. But I had a lot of isolation. I was with this beautiful baby my baby was, um, colicky and that was hard. I didn't sleep for about a year and you know, it's, it's rough. Yeah. It's rough.
0: Yeah. Our second, our middle daughter was colicky too. And boy, there was certainly not any sex going on during no. that period because she was crying all day and all night. And she all needed you could to be do, soothed. Yeah. You just swaddle her and walk, swaddle yes. and walk. Yeah, yes. That's all we could do. Um, and I will say, you know, the geometry of the relationship, you know, with a partner really changes. And I'm obviously coming from the, the male perspective in this particular case. But when I look back kind of in those earlier days, I'm not sure I treated Skylar as the sexy thing that she was. She is awfully hot. I just yeah. have to say. <laughs> I know. Now I do. <laughs> um, but postpartum, because my Like there was a little, you know, evolutionary switch that went off in my brain, which is like, I have to now protect, I have to provide, I have this little creature um, in my life that is so vulnerable that I need to take care of. And I need to take care of the mother of that vulnerable creature and make sure that she has support. I need to go out and breadwin. I need to, all the things that go through my brain at that point. And sex wasn't among those things, right. you know. That's it was right. lower on the list. Yeah. So I think it's partially on the male too to be like, you know, no, your your partner is still your sex partner, um, even though now there's this. Now you're a triangle and not a straight line or a trapezoid or however many ki- kids you know that you do have. So I think there was something there. I, you know, I also wonder if you know we're evolutionarily coded to stop having as much libido once we have children. Now, this is like something that I don't know (laughs) anything about other than, you know, that one of our primary evolutionary purposes to be here on Earth is to pass down our genome such that nature can select for its better attributes and the species can better. Um, And I don't know, you know, this is pure conjecture speculation, but over time, if we are essentially some degree pre-coded to stop having as much libido. Now, I don't even know if there's any scientific basis for that, but there seems to be just kind of like, it strikes me as there may be some sort of evolutionary or philosophical basis for it.
1: I'm not an expert at that particular topic either, but (laughs) I think it makes sense. You know, it passes the common sense uh, question, but I I think it's also, you know, there's a few exceptions to that rule. And I'm thinking in particular about uh, one of my neighbors Um, when I used to live in Berkeley, Ayelet Waldman, so married to Michael Chabon, um, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author. And so she's been very public about the uh, swinging from the chandeliers, the (laughs) incredibly satisfying sexual life that she has with Michael. In fact, she went on Oprah when Oprah was still running her talk show talking about this. And she received so much pushback when she talked about how she prioritizes her marriage and her connection and attachment to her husband and how um, good sex has been sort of, you know, part of the, the consequence of that. So I do think that there are exceptions, but for the most part, I think we're, most people are struggling with libido and I want to give that a hopeful message that you can pick it up again, but In some ways, it's a bit of an initiation. You know, it gives you kind of this opportunity to take a look at your relationship, to take a look at your relative roles and how you're dividing your tasks, this transactional nature that you mentioned. And while I would say that about 70% of decreased libido is hormonal, it's part of this much larger ecosystem of metabolism. Like what is your metabolic health like? How are your mitochondria? Energy.
0: Energy. 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 That's it. Yeah. And how are
1: you managing your energy? Yeah. And there's the relational aspect as well. Do you have a secure attachment? Are you someone who's more anxiously attached from the way that you grew up or a more avoidant attachment? So there's so many things to consider here. And then, you know, you just layer in some of these other pieces, like just the role of sleep and how essential that is to feeling like you've got a good sex drive.
0: Yeah, we, we live in a, such a strange um, sort of ambivalent culture as it pertains to sex. Like we're both incredibly libertine and puritanical at yes. the same time. So like...
1: It's so confusing. It's
0: Yeah, like in the palm of your hand, you can order up any form of imaginable kink, you know, momentarily. So whatever, you know, bondage, threesomes, you name it, you can get it in a second. Yet we can't really even talk about it half the time. That's right. You know what I mean? We can't even say what we want or what we're curious about or what we want to try. And so I think that there is that. I mean, that obviously comes back to like how good are the other parts of your relationship with your partner such that you uh, can be honest about that sort of thing. Like, hey, I want to try this kinky little thing (laughs) Um, because that novelty will help me feel like I want to have sex more.
1: Yeah, it's such a good point. It's such a good point. And I think that um, a lot of folks don't realize that novelty is so critical. And so this relational piece is is so important. I think it might be helpful to talk about some of the hormonal changes yes. that occur because there's some actually new literature on this that yeah. I find uh, really interesting.
0: 100%. I think like we've bracketed the, the more relational, psychological, societal components of it. And I think that, uh, as you say, hormones is a significant part of the equation. So... What's happening here? Well,
1: one other thing societally that I think is worth mentioning is that it's not just that we've got this puritanical vibe that keeps us from talking about it, along with the accessibility that you mentioned. Physicians totally fail people right and left. So when I went through my medical training, you know, 30 years ago, I was taught to ask, here's the sexual history I was taught. Men, women are both. Like that was it. So it's probably a little more nuanced and, you know, more uh, gendered than, than uh, what it was before. But I just, I gave a talk on this recently and I looked at, okay, what are medical schools doing? Have they evolved in their asking about the sexual history and making sure that their patients are having sexually satisfying lives? No, we've gone in the wrong direction. So only about 44% of U.S. medical schools even teach about how to give a how to take a sexual history. Forty-four percent. So that means fifty-six percent are not. And so a lot of physicians just don't feel comfortable asking about this. And so you know where is this woman to go to get help? She's coming to our podcast to try to get some help.
0: <laughs> oh no! Now I feel really bad for her. <laughs> Hey, it's Jeff, and when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile. Well, this relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. That's insidetracker.com forward slash D-R-G. You know, typically we have associated androgens or testosterone with libido. Um, To what degree is that actually really true? And to the degree that it is true... You know, what can we do um, to increase testosterone levels such that, like, we might have some more libido? I can just be, from my own experience, since I've started doing more resistance training, and this might just be coincidental, so you'll have to help me understand the physiology here. Since I started doing more strength training, I have had a greater sex drive.
1: Whoa.
0: Yeah. TMI.
1: Awesome. <laughs> Go, Skylar. Yeah. Yeah, so strength training. So we know that there's so many lifestyle-based things that you can do to improve your testosterone. And it's not just your level of testosterone, it's also the way that it's trafficked in the body, the way that the signal moves around. And also your receptors. You know, some people have the kind of receptors that do really well with a low amount of testosterone. Other people have the type of receptors that need a high level to feel, you know, kind of that swing from the chandeliers feeling. So this is one of those places where, again, there's some sex differences, some biological differences. So what we know is that for men, a decline in testosterone, so having um, low T, low testosterone, is associated with decreased libido, decreased muscle mass, also more metabolic dysfunction. But if we focus first on libido, we know that, low T is also associated with erectile dysfunction. So we can talk more about erectile dysfunction maybe another time, but the seeing this, you know, kind of cause and effect in men is very clear in the literature. And then if you see someone with low T and then you start providing exogenous testosterone, you can see an uptick in terms of sex drive and also erectile performance. In women, the story is more murky. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of women who have decreased sex drive and they've got completely normal testosterone levels. And many of them, I think, you know, and it's not just children. It's not just the effect of children. There are also women who do have low testosterone, who have low sex drive, and then you give them exogenous testosterone, bioidentical testosterone, and their sex drive improves. Overall, when you look at Interest, sexual interest among women. There was a huge study that was done by Jan Schifrin at Massachusetts General Hospital. She found that 43% of women are not satisfied with their sex life. So that's a lot of women that are running around not satisfied. And so I wish I could say that there is a really clear hormonal profile of a woman with low sex drive The story is that it really varies and you have to look at an individual woman and you really have to do end of one experiments, you know, like a trial of DHEA, a trial of testosterone, a trial of some of the lifestyle factors that you've talked about, like reducing sugar, reducing refined carbohydrates, addressing stress and high cortisol, strength training, you know, some of those lifestyle based things, more protein, um, certain forms of protein that can help with low testosterone. That said, there is a woman who is at the University of British Columbia, Rosemary Basson. Oh,
0: Rosemary,
1: who's done such important work.
0: Very sexy name.
1: Isn't it? Yeah. Totally.
0: Rosemary Basson.
1: And she studies sex. So she's she's contributed so much to this literature on women and sex drive. And I really encourage you to take a look at some of her papers. She has a more recent paper showing that. There are a few biomarkers, the kind of things that I measure in all of my patients, uh, regardless of sex and gender. For instance, low DHEA and low cortisol are associated with decreased sexual interest and desire. We used to call it, the medical term for it was hypoactive sexual uh, dysphoric disorder, and we've changed it from HSDD to sexual interest and desire disorder. So that said, That profile does seem to be important. So low DHEA, low cortisol. And then the question about testosterone, I think is still um, the data are mixed when it comes to women. But I think it's worth a trial of testosterone in women that have low T. And then we certainly know for women who are going through perimenopause and menopause that in women who are good candidates, starting estrogen and progesterone, bioidentical hormone therapy, can make a difference with libido. But this is one of those places where you have to do an NF one experiment. So can I say one other thing about Rosemary? Please. So here's a fundamental disconnect that happens between those that are born assigned female at birth and those that are assigned male at birth, which is the way I like to think of it. And when I say men and women, that's kind of what I mean. So she found that the Masters and johnson model of what happens with sex, what happens with desire, where you start with, you know, kind of imagining sexual connection and increasing desire, and it increases to, um, you know, kind of a blood flow to your genitalia, and that leads to um, a plateau phase where you're, you become more tumescent and then you have an orgasm and then you have a refractory period after orgasm or ejaculation. That was defined for men. And women don't seem to go through exactly that same process. Some women do, but what most men, she found, what most men need is they need sex to feel emotionally connected. Whereas women, most women are the opposite they need emotional intimacy to feel desire. So it kind of, unless you understand that, it kind of sets you up for this problem in your relationship where the guy is looking for sex to feel connected and the woman wants the connection before she's open to sex. Mm,
0: So interesting.
1: It's super interesting. And once men understand that and realize that, If you do the dishes the way that you did last night, Jeff (laughs) Krasno, that that creates emotional intimacy and it makes for a much better evening if you have sex on the mind. The problem is
0: I do the dishes so often there's no novelty (laughs) to it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you for noticing. (laughs) I noticed. Yeah. So it sounds like for Sarah, A, there is hope. There's so much hope. And you know, I will just say kind of from my own personal experience that Skylar, in and, and our relationship, we've experienced crests and troughs yes. within our sexual lives. Totally normal. And um, certainly in the early days, as we've discussed of having children, that was a trough. Um, and But it crested again, and it's cresting.
1: Yay. Yeah. So, Hooray for the crest.
0: So yeah. And But that is life. Life is a yin and yang. Life is a... Is is abundance and periods of fallow and and it's 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 a navigation of crests and troughs. And so, but it sounds like you know, if you want to, if you know, Sarah is really looking for more sexual intimacy in her life, that there are some active things that she can do. You know, some of them might be just purely logistical, of like actually putting you, you might have to engineer time with your lover or your partner in those early days when you have, when you have children, yeah, yes. they're like put it in the calendar. This is date night. We're doing this. We're not going to just give our whole lives away to our children. And we, you know, but that there are more n of one experiments that you can, um, you know, engage in, jump into your own Petri dish with some hormone therapies. Right. So That's you, right. you suggested, DHEA.
1: Well, test your hormones test first your to see You're where right. you are. I yeah. think that's really critical. And I, I, I appreciate you sharing the crests and troughs that you've had in your marriage because you've been married a long time, right. and I've been around you and Skylar a lot. You've got secure functioning attachment. It's a beautiful model that you share with the world, and I think it's important to realize that yeah, there's crests and troughs and you know periods of follow, yeah, even with secure attachment. It's normal.
0: hundred percent. And Sarah, winter promises a spring <laughs> every <right>. year. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, and you you have to have some uh, faith, not, not just belief in the absence of evidence, but actually trust in nature that spring will come again and the flowers will blossom um, because we can look back and that's what it does. So, but I think, you know, as you say, like these are things you have to cultivate in your own life I also 100% agree with you. I use the um, the example of strength training just because for me that's been a bigger thing recently. But it certainly has upgraded my ben- my metabolic health and my underlying capability to produce energy more efficiently. And when I feel more vibrant and energetic as a human being, that's going to carry over into all elements of my life, including sex. Yes. so
1: It's huge and it's... You know, I I appreciate this point about making time for it. And when I was, when I had young children, one of the things that I found was that if I waited until the end of the day, like after, you know, that whole ritual, Jerry Seinfeld talks about, you know, like the coronation ceremony that you do with your kids where you like carry their robes as you you know, <laughs> walk them up to their room and read five books. And, like, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you're waiting until 9, 10 p.m. and you're so depleted, like that's not the time for creative sex. So it might be that you schedule it in the morning. It might be that you have a babysitter who like takes the kids to the parks so that you are, um, you know, taking care of this side. And I also think it's important to realize that the way you do sex is kind of the way you do everything. Like sex sexual energy is such a fundamental creative force in our life you want to pay attention to it even though there's these you know crests and troughs you really want to be minding it mm-hmm. you don't want to just you know shut down the shop
0: yeah sounds like you also have to buy a chandelier <laughs> you gotta buy a chandelier <laughs> if you want to swing from something you gotta, a good you one know, you gotta buy one all right thanks sarah thank you Thanks so much for listening to our new Ask Dr. G series. As I've mentioned, we have a special offer for those of you who review the show on Apple Podcasts. By writing a review, you can receive all access to the Commune course platform, which features over 130 courses on health and wellness for a whole month for free. So just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review to receive your free all access for 30 days. And preferably it's a positive review. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at JeffK at OneCommune.com. Lastly, I would love to thank the folks that make the show possible week over week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Violent Augustine, Cooper Mall, Sylvan Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. What a team. Okay, that's all from the Commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno and I am here for you